Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, I'm Rachel Woody, and I'm here with Pamela Fry and Richard Boyles. It's June 13th, 2019, and the first question we like to start with is, why wine? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, wine is um, what all good times are built around, (laughs) in our experience anyway. Um, uh, Wine, food, people, conversation, uh, all seem to go together. Um, Why plant a vineyard is maybe a different question, Mm -hmm. and uh, that really has to do with, um, uh, I think, farming being in in my past, and um, uh, I'll say my blood, something I don't seem to be able to get away from. And when you say your past, is it like family heritage or previous work experience? So I grew up, um, my family uh, farmed a little bit of wheat, kept some cattle, and um, had hazelnut orchards. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was mm-hmm. uh, definitely in the thick of that. Excellent. And did you have past jobs that sort of moved you into wine or perhaps influenced your path? No. <laughs> Uh, Which is also really. interesting. Yes, yeah, yes you know ab- I mean? absolutely would be um, my answer. Um, and my work history obviously is a little different than Pamela's. Um, so I studied international business, uh, worked for a Seattle area tech company, and eventually had the opportunity to open their first offices in Europe. Uh, first living um, outside of Frankfurt and then outside of Zurich. And so that gave um, Pamela and I an opportunity um, to continue our exploration of wine um, in in Europe. So uh, it was before we had kids, so weekends were our own Mm -hmm. to go out and explore. So we would spend um, many weekends in uh, Burgundy or Alsace or uh, the German wine growing regions. So, Mm. and then occasionally we'd get farther afield, for instance, maybe to Austria or, or Italy. So certainly, while the work wasn't directly related to uh, to wine, the the where we were located um, uh, certainly played into that. Um, when we were in Seattle uh, before um, working in Europe, uh, Washington's wine industry was growing. That was the early '80s, and um, so that was a good time to explore Washington wines and Oregon wines as well. So being based in Seattle, we explored wine uh, at the vineyards and tasting rooms both there and, and when we would uh, return to see family in uh, the Eugene area. Uh, well, there's a lot of wine country between Seattle and Eugene. <laughs> Not so much in 1980s, but <laughs> we, we still but visited if you were going, there was at the time. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Excellent. And Pamela, would you share a little bit about your background? Oh my gosh. Um, You know, we're both native Eugenians, graduated from the University of Oregon, early 80s. Um, 
you know, we, Richard went to graduate school in Arizona, um, so we were there. I mean, I've, I've done everything from banking to being a stockbroker to um, once we moved back to Eugene in the early 90s, I worked for the University of Oregon as a business manager. So that was sort of my path um, as we're, and then as we started the winery in, well, gosh, the vineyard was planted in 1992. No, we bought the property in 1992. Vineyard started in 1996. Um, the first time we opened the taste room was 2007-8. So obviously we've been involved in all of that from the very beginning, mm -hmm. but as we are also in our own you know, careers here <laughs> in the Eugene area. So that's sort of my background. So the other piece of what I do today is um, real estate development with a focus on uh, developing hotels and operating them. So, uh, as part of the hospitality industry, you know, wine fits um, wine fits right into that. Uh, hospitality. You know, we talked at the outset about um, why wine, mm -hmm. um, and um, and you know, obviously, there's a theme that runs through there um, of hospitality, um, welcoming people. And uh, so I continue to see that uh, that tie today in in across what we do. Absolutely, I do have a question about hospitality. But before we move on to that, um, you mentioned coming back to Eugene, but having experiences with the wine industry in Washington. Uh, how was it that you chose this site for yourselves? Uh, so it, it's partly driven by our roots. We're both from the Eugene area, um, but then it's also a matter of exploring the, the things that um, you, one would look for in siting a vineyard. So it's uh, soils were sort of the first driver. Um, we looked over the county soils map when that was um, still a book this thick, not something available <laughs> online, and started narrowing our searches based on the county uh, soil uh, information. Then looking at topography, uh, and then looking at uh, properties that were available. Uh, when we returned to Eugene, this was actually the second property that we purchased. Um, as we did further due diligence on that other property, um, we recognized some of its limitations from a farming perspective and uh, this property came available and um, as a consequence we sold that one and uh, bought this one for um, its, uh, its um, well all of the things we were looking for, uh, soil, um, elevations, um, aspect, uh, and farmability ultimately. Mm -hmm. And could you explain the process of what it's like to plant a vineyard and maybe some of the specific decisions you've made, such as incorporating trees? Mm -hmm. um, so planting a vineyard, uh, you, you start out with existing conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So you may have a pasture uh, or you may have a stand of trees. Um, I would highly recommend planting in pasture. <laughs> um, it's a whole lot less work and a whole lot less expensive if you can find what you're looking for. And in fact, um, at this location, that um, is exactly what we did initially, uh, was to, uh, to plant the, um, the, the slopes that had been um, in pasture previously. Mm -hmm. The total property is uh, about 870 acres, only about 40 of those are planted to vines right now. 
Um, but we're currently doing some, some clearing of areas that um, have been forested mm -hmm. um, that will involve a, a lot more work to really clear, um, to clear those, uh, those areas. So in a pastured area, you start by, um, well, setting the boundaries of your vineyard, uh, ripping the soil typically. Uh, in the case of pastured areas, those soils are likely to have been compacted by uh, the presence of uh, cattle or other, other livestock. Um, and then it's a, a matter of laying out, making decisions about what um, your uh, row widths will be mm -hmm. um, and uh, beginning to set out, lay out your vineyard from there. Of course, uh, somewhere along the way, you place your order for plants um, and the decisions about what plants, uh, both uh, rootstock and uh, clonal material. Uh, scion wood um, are uh, the first is informed by your what by what soils you have uh, and um, maybe also you know what levels of productivity you're looking for um, and then the top wood the cyan wood is all about what you want to put in the bottle mm -hmm. so um, that's the plant selection piece of it um, you know after, sometime after preparation typically in the spring or late winter, uh, the plants go in the ground. And then in non-irrigated conditions, um, like uh, ours has been historically, uh, you know, uh, there's the establishment years where you are hand watering plants uh, from a uh, pull tank on a tractor, mm -hmm. um, three or maybe four times in that initial year. Uh, and, um, you know, that's often the case in the second year as well on to, um, you know, hopefully some limited fruit production in the third year and fourth year, something more, more significant. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. You mentioned choosing the plants and, and selecting varieties. Um, some of the varieties that you do make wine with are not the typical Willamette Pinot Noir. Could you explain the, the decision making behind that and why you chose the varieties you chose? So on the estate, we have planted uh, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris and Chardonnay. And in our new plantings, I think we'll include some Pinot Meunier and some Pinot Blanc. But you're right, we do make wines that um, are made from grapes that we don't grow here, um, don't have enough heat, for instance, to mm -hmm. ripen Tempranillo or Syrah. Uh, so the decision to make those, while our focus is primarily on our own vineyard, um, one of the realities of having a, uh, a wine club in a tasting room, but more particularly a wine club. So we like to keep things interesting for, um, for our followers. And um, our winemaker also has an interest in doing things beyond uh, the three varietals that we grow here. Um, so uh, that's really how we came to do some of the, um, some of the uh, wines that we don't grow on site. Do you find that it helps to set you apart and is part of the attraction for tourists that come to do wine tasting by having a different offering than Pinot Noir or Pinot Gris? It sets us apart? I, that isn't the goal, I, I don't think. I think we were just trying to be sure that there's enough variety to keep people interested because not everybody loves Pinot like we do. I mean, yeah. we're in the business because we love Pinot. Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris and Chardonnay, but some people like a little heavier body wine, and so it sort of satisfies that group of people that might have, that might need a variety. Um, 
Yeah, I suppose it might be a little bit different than some of the wineries up north that really are Pinot Noir and then a white, mm -hmm. a Chardonnay, mm -hmm. I suppose. I've seen a lot of that. But. For us, part of the what is fascinating about wine is um, that it's an exploration. There is mm -hmm. always something new to try. And I think that um, uh, having some of the other varietals does, uh, if not set us apart, at least create some interest uh, for folks coming uh, to the to the tasting room. And um, as I said, although we're we're a Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Rosé <laughs> yeah. centric um, operation, uh, you know the the Syrah and the Tempranillo certainly have their followers. There are there are folks who come here because those are the wines that we produce that they love best. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, yes, I think to some degree it, it does help um, uh, set us apart in the minds of, um, of consumers. Uh, we're, we're not so, um, uh, I'll say monochromatic. There is value in being um, narrowly focused, mm -hmm. um, but um, when you can do other things well, and they appeal to the public, well, why not? Yeah, we do sparkling too, so that's been a fun new thing that people really are loving, so yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what would you say your grape growing philosophy is? Uh, well, I, I would say that um, we approach the vineyard first as farmers, so um, we like to have all of the tools that are available to us Mm -hmm. um, to produce the best fruit. That's really our goal is to produce the best fruit that our site um, uh, will allow in any given year. So we um, are, you know, thoughtful about the fact that, you know, the vineyard needs to be sustainable mm -hmm. um, and that means treating the plants well, the land well, but it also needs to be economically sustainable. So um, I, I think our, our guiding principle is let's do what it takes in the vineyard to produce the best fruit and make the winemaker's job as easy as possible. You might read non-interventionist as possible in, in the winery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And speaking of philosophy, um, is it Arete? Is mm -hmm. that how you pronounce it? It is. Could you explain Arete, the concept, and why you've chosen to have it as being one of your tenants? Yeah, Arete is something that's uh, very important to us. Um, I was first exposed to the concept um, while I was uh, studying at the Honors College at the University of Oregon. Uh, and basically, this is the idea that um, our purpose in being is um, to continue to add skills, uh, to learn, uh, really to, um, to, to be in pursuit of constant um, improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to be at the top of your game. So the idea of Arete is um, basically to, uh, to, to pay attention, understand what skills and knowledge you need to do better tomorrow than you did today. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of opportunity for that, uh, both in uh, grape growing and, and winemaking. Um, our uh, most premium wines carry the Arete label because they're in, in particular um, an expression of, uh, of that aspiration, um, you know, to, to 
to be the best that we can be. And, and when we put Arete on, on the label, that's what we're saying. This is, mm. uh, this is the best of what we craft here at Iris. Excellent. And would you mind describing your respective roles here, what you typically manage or take care of in vineyard and, and wine making and <laughs> hospitality? <clears throat> well, our model is that we, we choose to have experts, you know, we have an expert winemaker, we have a general manager. Um, I like to be involved more on the operations side, just overseeing, supervising, um, overseeing the tasting room. I, we have a tasting room manager, we have a vineyard manager. Um, so I would say Richard and I are, are, you know, we meet with everybody weekly, some days almost daily. Um, as a team, we work as a team, mostly. So I don't know how you would answer that. So for, for my part, much as I might enjoy more tractor time and, and more time to, uh, to, to prune, and I do manage to get a little bit of those things in um, at this point, and, and hope to more at some point in the future, um, in, in my role as uh, president of Merite Hotel Management Group, um, in addition to this, I find myself being a manager of managers. So we set the goals, set the agenda in conjunction typically with the, with the general manager, set the budget uh, and the expectations, and um, then remain engaged uh, to uh, support uh, the um, realization of, of the goals. So, um, yeah, so that, that is true of where we are today. Um, on the other hand, in the early days, uh, it was a much more hands-on experience than, than today. Um, yes, in the early days there was much more tractor time, pruning time, um, you know, we were in the thick of all of the decisions uh, because there really wasn't anybody else um, at that point in time. So it's been an interesting evolution over time as we've grown and been in a position to uh, to uh, attract um, uh, people with specific expertise to assist in our goals. Mm -hmm. uh, it's meant, you know, letting go, letting go of some things and, and letting them do what, mm -hmm. they're, uh, what they're great at. So, mm -hmm. um, and when that works well, mm -hmm. there, there really isn't a, a better model, so. Mm -hmm. Pamela, could you speak to what it was like to transition into owning property, planting a vineyard, and, and what it was like to then evolve into bringing in the experts? Oh gosh, you know, transition. Well, it's, it's slow. It's a slow, it was a slow trans transition. Moving from Eugene to the country. We've been out here 19 years now, living. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, that's one of the bigger impacts. Obviously, it's wonderful to live out here. Um, It's just been, like Richard said, it's been an evolution of, of beginning, you know, with just the two of us doing all the compliance, me running out to, you know, schlepping the wine at the different wine stores and shops and that sort of thing to, um, yeah, growing, adding people gradually. Um, yeah, just, uh, it's been a pretty easy, like, I guess, gradual transition. It's always been a matter of balance, too, I would say, because there, there hasn't been a point in time uh, for, for me, for Pamela, it's a little different now, 
where uh, you know there there weren't multiple businesses that needed attention, multiple operations that needed attention. So um, you know you can't grow um, if you try and do everything your, yourself, and you can't really live up to the idea of verite as well if you don't recognize when there are others who can do something better than than you. So for the organization, part of that whole idea of verite is about finding the people who can fill those those needs for knowledge and skill um, and and apply them successfully. So mm -hmm. uh, that's been, I would say, an important, a really important piece of the transition. Now we've touched on hospitality a little bit, the love of food and wine. Let's get back into that. How has your passion for food and wine and the hospitality industry influenced what you do here? Well, probably most directly in the in the tasting room uh, and the the club activities. Do you want to talk about those? <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> Follow your line of thinking there. All right. <laughs> sure. Well, so uh, obviously, uh, on a personal level, we we enjoy having groups come together around food, wine, conversation. As I said before. And, you know, in the hospitality environment, we have the opportunity to do that as well, particularly um, in a full service environment, um, full service hotel environment where there's a catering operation, um, events. Um, that principle of verite also guides the way we, we approach, uh, I'll say, hosting events, because if we don't execute well, people's experience isn't what they hope it to be and and when we do execute really well and exceed expectations that makes memorable moments mm -hmm. and for us that ties right back into some of the things that motivated us to, to do this that that sense of community that happens around um, wine food uh, good conversation yeah. um, in the tasting room side of things you know we we pursue that same hospitality approach um, that I described in the full-service hotel arena. And then for our club members, we try to make it fun with, um, with special events. Um, you know, uh, it, it, and the goal of those really is to create interaction between our team and, and the, the folks who love and follow Iris, to meet new people, to show them a good time as well, to bring them into the fold, really. Uh, and, and give them something to talk about and, and remember, um, and to remember Iris warmly in that context. Yeah, we've, I think over the years, in the, being part of the hospitality industry, we've learned a lot about being hospitable, obviously. Mm. Um, gained a lot of experience and knowledge in that area, and I think it's really helped us here, you know, with the tasting room. Yeah, and as you say, the wine club. But I mean, you and I, we, we, we always, anywhere we travel, it's for food and wine. Uh, you know, it's just part of our lifestyle and our love. And, you know, hopefully we're transferring that mm. interest, love, <laughs> you know, to our guests and to the experience that they have here at, out at the, the house, the vineyard, the tasting room. 
Mm -hmm. property. Yeah, these experiences at the tasting room tend to attract like-minded people. And so that's how community is built around a brand. Mm -hmm. What types of special events do you host and why? So they really come in two flavors, I would say. One is um, our, uh, or, or three probably. One is our club-related events, and you know those are those are for um, intended for folks who are part of the club, our, our closest followers, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, the other group, um, like our upcoming Rosé days, where we're inviting a, a you know ten or is it eleven other wineries. <laughs> Um, 12 now, uh, other local wineries to join us here at Iris and Pour Rosé. So that's an opportunity for um, people who follow those wineries to come out, um, be exposed to ours, but others as well, and build a sense of community around, uh, around Rosé as well as our local winery community more broadly. Um, so that's an example of an event that's open to the general public. Um, and then the third are sort of the special events. Um, we have a setting here that tends to um, resonate with people for special events in their lives, whether it's a wedding or a birthday party or an anniversary party, some sort of celebration. Mm -hmm. And um, those, you know, are again very focused um, uh, and not necessarily on our on our core group of um, of club members, but again, executing those events in a way that makes positive memories um, around what are very important events in people's lives uh, is is right back to that. Uh, well, both of those themes of hospitality and arete. So. Mm -hmm. You both have been in the wine industry for a long time in terms of modern Oregon wine history. Uh, have you been involved in some of the industry committees or work outside the winery that helps the overall wine industry? Mm -hmm. Well, I've been on the South Willamette Wineries Association Executive Committee, I, I, I don't know how many times, but probably at least eight, eight years mm -hmm. over the last, whatever, <laughs> however many years. Um, that's how I've been involved in the wine industry. You've, you've got more. So I've, I've also served on the South Willamette Wineries Association, not serving there currently. Um, I've been involved uh, with uh, Travel Lane County for something on the order of 20 years at this point. Um, and, you know, one of the important tourism assets in our county and our state um, are the wineries. Um, so helping to develop product or supporting staff's development of product uh, that helps get people from beyond our area and people in our area out to explore, to explore all that we have to offer in this, um, in this county has been very satisfying um, and I think good for our economy as well. Good for the wineries certainly, but our distilleries, um, our, our craft brewers, um, the, our food trails, and you know, um, our communities more broadly. Um, uh, I also serve uh, now um, in my second term uh, on the Oregon Tourism Commission. So that takes 
the work that I've been involved in in Lane County um, up quite a few notches uh, as um, Travel Oregon um, has a significantly larger budget and um, significantly larger geographic area to cover. Mm -hmm. But um, again, I help represent um, both the hospitality industry and the viticulture industry, um, wines and vineyards, um, uh, and um, help assure that that, um, that industry stays uh, front and center in the work that, um, that Travel Oregon does, and does so well, I will add. Yeah. That's Thank a you. very effective organization. Uh, and all of, um, certainly all of the wineries um, in the state benefit from that, even if it is not the sole work, obviously, that Travel Oregon does. Mm -hmm. So for Eugene specifically, where would you place it within the broader Oregon wine industry, and what do you think makes this area unique? <laughs> well, no what, pressure. What, <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, we're uniquely situated at the south end of the Willamette Valley. Um, our international airport is in Portland, uh, and that is many people, many tourists' gateway to our state. So um, it, it's really pretty easy for visitors to the state, even those who have a genuine interest in exploring um, our, our uh, wine trails, you know, something beyond a casual interest, even those who have a genuine interest you know, can satisfy a lot of their interest within an hour's drive of Portland. Mm -hmm. So I think the challenge for the South Willamette, as well as the Umpqua Rogue, uh, is really attracting people beyond, you know, that hour radius of Portland where, where so many of the visitors to our state end up. So that, that is one lens um, to, to view the South Willamette through. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other lens, though, is, is just that we do have a lot to offer, and in many cases, one of the, one of the things that we have to offer is that um, the experience here is different than what you'll find um, up north. Uh, in the north part of the valley, there are more people um, traveling to, to tasting rooms and, and the, the back roads of wine country than you'll find here, and that necessarily means that um, the experience is different, less intimate, um, busier. Um, and when I think of what attracts people to, uh, to, to visit tasting rooms, and certainly what we've tried to craft here is, you know, a little bit of a, a quieter, more contemplative way um, to sit, enjoy wine, have conversations, um, and so that is a second lens to view the, the South Willamette as, as well as the southern uh, part of the state uh, through. Uh, really just a different experience. Um, and there's plenty of urban stuff to do, maybe not to the same degree as Portland, but um, you know, there's a vibrant food and art scene. We've got the University of Oregon, all the athletic events that go with that. Um, including, you know, NCAAs and coming up um, the World Games. Right. So, you know, it's, uh, we, we aspire to do a lot down here, broadly speaking, in tourism. And, you know, we have the same sort of aspirations 
uh, as um, all of those in the industry have to, uh, to, to stand out, make wines that are of real interest to consumers, um, and uh, build the reputation of our, of our, our winery, our region, and our state in the wine world. Mm -hmm. We're also in a cool, you know, geographically speaking, we're a cooler site at this end. That makes us a little bit unique to the, our northern section of the Willamette Valley. Um, our vineyards are between 800 and 1,000 feet. Mm -hmm. um, our next door neighbors, King Estate, are similarly located. <laughs> the mm -hmm. wines are about the same elevation. So that makes us a little unique in that respect, too, as well. It's, it's, yeah, and so that, that does have a particular expression in our wines and um, one that um, we like and, um, and uh, our followers like as well. Mm -hmm. How have you seen the wine industry evolve? You mean besides getting so much bigger? <laughs> yeah, that is certainly one of the, the big hallmarks of it at the moment. I, you know, I think that um, there is more research, more knowledge, better winemaking skills, better selection of, of, of clones that, um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can ripen and express themselves well in our Oregon climate in, in contrast to, to others. Um, I think that some of the collegiality that existed um, uh, in the early years of our involvement is less apparent, mm -hmm. uh, but I would still say by comparison, um, Oregon is still pretty collegial uh, in, um, in its wine world. Certainly, um, you know, we know everyone who's involved in the South Willamette Wineries Association. It's still, you know, a relatively small, although growing group. And we, we swap ideas and everything from, you know, what's going on in the vineyard to how to market better. Um, certainly, we do some cooperative marketing. Um, and events. And events. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Where do you see it going? Given the exponential growth, where do you see the industry in, say, like the next 25 years? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, demographics aren't necessarily on the side of wine at the moment. There are so many other beverage alternatives. Uh, out there, and um, uh, certainly the younger end of the demographic spectrum um, has, there are wine followers in that group, but not to the extent as, um, as in the past. Um, and I think that there may prove to be challenges uh, for the industry um, around diminished overall consumption over time. It'll be interesting to see how and if we adapt as an industry. You know, one of the differences between craft brewing, which I've been involved in in the past, and winemaking is, you know, if you see a change in what your customers want in the brewery industry, you, you can respond within a matter of weeks or, or a month. Um, and the average craft brewer, you know, uh, makes, you know, potentially many batches of beer in the course of a year, 
where a winemaker makes one, mm-hmm. uh, or at least has one vintage to deal with. There may be many things going on within that vintage, but it's still nonetheless, you know, uh, much more of an annual cycle than you find in, um, in, in other alcoholic beverage production. Um, and, and then just the other categories, um, you know, nobody drank kombucha 10 years ago. Um, or had heard of June, for instance, um, or you know any number shrubs, any number of other beverages that now are competing for people's attention. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I look forward at the industry, you know I don't know that I can predict how it will how it will change, how many cannabis-infused wines there will be <laughs> out there, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or whether wine takes a completely different direction. I sort of suspect that it remains a more traditional beverage, more, more true to its roots, shall we say. Mm-hmm. The brews that are, the beers that are brewed today don't have too much to do with the Reinheitsgebot um, to the German mm-hmm. beer laws. Mm-hmm. Um, they're totally experimental and um, uh, from that perspective at least. And um, I, I think I don't see wine going that direction. But the fact that there is um, innovation along a more limited scope mm-hmm. um, uh, may be one of the challenges for the industry going forward. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts you'd like to share, Pamela? Well, yeah, I mean, we just, you know, as an industry, we have to be, continue to be dynamic, but as Richard said, I mean, somewhat traditional, well, we are more regulated, as you mentioned, um, and just understanding what the consumer wants within that, you know, within our capabilities, Mm -hmm. and of course, adapting to any climate change and whatever comes along. I mean, you just have to be, Mm -hmm. continue to be dynamic and and listening, good listeners, and yeah, just you know, grab as much data and and informal, you know, informal data as well mm-hmm. to make those decisions down the road. But yeah, it's yeah part of being in a business. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, Adapting and responding, yeah. and and um, trusting that there is. Uh, some level of demand out there for your product, both as an individual producer and as an industry. Mm-hmm. Which has continued to be the case. It's never, it's, it's been pretty solid. I mean, it hasn't, you know, through all these years. It's <laughs> so, true, So, yeah. you know, even, even with all the other, you know, products coming online, well, you know, it, it'll be a challenge, but so far we've done all right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's true. I do remember in the um, early 90s um, when there were far fewer of, fewer of us than there are today, there was a concern about um, the, uh, the lake of um, Pinot Noir that was unconsumed sitting in winery uh, uh, warehouses. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that proved not to be a problem. And I, mm-hmm. I certainly hope as we continue as an industry to produce more um, that uh, that that continued consumer demand uh, matches our our output. Mm-hmm. As a real estate developer, I sometimes see that that cycle is um, not not beneficial for some. Um, there is a tendency to overbuild, 
potentially to overproduce in the winery world and um, all of that has to uh, work its way through markets and has a great deal of bearing on what opportunity looks like going forward. Uh, Pamela mentioned climate change. One of my follow-up questions was for the vineyards specifically, what sort of challenges are on the horizon for us? I'll, I'll take that one since yeah. um, the vineyard is kind of my, my purview. Um, you know, over the longer term, I think it, it, there's a real question about whether um, the Willamette Valley generally um, will be, you know, a suitable place to grow Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of ways to adapt to a warming climate um, and one would be to plant different varietals. Um, if we want to still be known for Pinot Noir, it could be that areas that are not planted today mm -hmm. uh, because they're maybe too high in elevation or are on the wrong side of a hill might become more suitable for, for Pinot production. So you might see the siting of um, vineyards altered over time. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are probably the, the two, you know, big picture kinds of responses. When it comes to disease pressure, um, we're likely to see a change in what affects uh, grapes and, you know, we'll have to adapt to that accordingly. Uh, you know, um, if it proves that the Willamette Valley becomes much less um, wet than it is currently, then, you know, we have to figure out how to manage, you know, water as a scarcer resource mm -hmm. than we do today. So mm -hmm. those are some of the challenges I see. Mm -hmm. Looking back on your time in the industry and with Iris Vineyards, what are some of your proudest moments or most memorable moments? <laughs> well, uh, I believe it was our 2002 Pinot Gris, so our second vintage um, uh, was um, selected as a double platinum um, award winner. Uh, so that was, that was pretty gratifying and um, told us that we might be doing something right or at least be on the, on the right track. Um, for me, the other thing that I would see, say, is kind of the growing traffic through our tasting room. Um, that's a real vindication that people um, enjoy what we have to offer, both in terms of wine and that hospitality and setting that is um, so, so important to us. Um, I think the other thing for a producer our size um, is our growing distribution. Um, it's not easy as a producer uh, the size that we are to secure meaningful distribution. Uh, you know, a distributor who really gets behind your product and helps get it out into the marketplace. Um, there are plenty of times when producers our size are declined. Uh, by, by distributors and um, consolidation in the distribution um, world, you know, makes meaningful opportunities more and more rare. So the fact that over the last um, three years in particular, we've been able to grow distribution to more states, um, I think is, uh, has, has been satisfying for, for, for us. Yeah, for me, one of the most favorite um, opportunities was 
being part of the International Pinot Noir Celebration mm -hmm. a few mm -hmm. times. Um, Richard and I went early days as spectators and loved it. <laughs> and then, you know, to be there was really a blast. Um, but yeah, the one-on-one -on -one compliments, that's, I, I think mm -hmm. that gives me the mm. greatest satisfaction, you know, when they're when folks are super excited about the wine and the place if we're here or mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be. That, that's probably the most satisfying for me. I would say the other thing for me is just the whole development of this property and the stewardship that's gone with it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> when we bought this property, it had uh, so 780 acres, um, most of which have been logged. It had a history going back for most of a hundred years as a mixed farm forest operation. Periodically, the owners of the property over time would come in, cut down the forest, graze it, the trees would grow back up, um, and they'd harvest again. Um, along the way, they, they mostly left oaks because there wasn't a commercial, uh, much of a commercial demand for, for oaks yeah. at the mills around here. So, um, you know, one of the first things we did when we acquired the property wasn't plant vines. We first replanted about 500 acres to trees, mm -hmm. and, you know, that has has grown now as, um, as a forest. This is a forested property. And where I could look across, you know, a hundred acres and not see much vegetation and certainly any wildlife, mm -hmm. you know, this property now supports abundant deer, <laughs> uh, many other mammal species, uh, including bears. Uh, certainly we have our share of coyotes. Um, cougar, elk occasionally, mm -hmm. and then all of you know the the um, less obvious flora and fauna from newts to a wide variety of lichens to mm -hmm. all of the birds that are resident here and come through. So while our motivation really was to start the vineyard, there's a larger picture here that's been really very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Where do you see iris growing in the future? <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Okay, <laughs> I, I see iris growing in um, numerous ways, in fact. Um, we are clearing area for the new vineyard, as you saw on your, on your way in. So vineyard expansion is one way in, in which we'll grow. Uh, we already purchase something on the order of 150 to 200 tons of fruit a year to, to meet our production needs. Mm -hmm. So growing our own vineyard to satisfy those needs um, uh, helps us keep our wines as an expression of place. Um, so that's another way in, in which we, we grow by representing our winery through um, what we do here. Uh, and have the greatest degree of control over. Um, in terms of production, I do see us growing over time um, and we will work diligently to grow responsibly, but there isn't a set growth goal. We'll grow organically in response to market demand mm -hmm. and um, you know, market demand is a response to, well, many things, but one is making uh, good to great wines at, um, you know, compelling wines, I would say, at uh, favorable price points. Mm -hmm. um, and then getting the word out. 
just working constantly to get the word out. So we will grow our unit production um, in response to the market's uh, acceptance of what we do. Um, in terms of people, I think we will continue to grow and create opportunities uh, and um, as, as business owners that's important to us too, is to create opportunities for people to grow, learn, advance, maybe even move on, um, best yet come back after other experiences and we've certainly seen that in the hospitality side of our business. That's all, uh, all very uh, satisfying and um, uh, so we like to foster individual growth as part of our business philosophy. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything you'd like to share, Pamela? No, I think he's covered it pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to continue what you had just mentioned in terms of mentoring sort of the next wave or next generation. What advice would you give someone who's looking to start in the wine industry, whether it's winemaking, hospitality, or a vineyard? Um, I would say the first thing you want to do is do your research. Be prepared um, and be prepared to um, change your ideas of what you, you thought you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, be alert to opportunity. Um, don't be so single-minded that you don't see other opportunity when it comes knocking. Um, breadth of experience. Um, can only benefit you as as you go through a career, um, as you go through development of a property. Um, you know, uh, it's back to those irrite ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Keep your mind open um, and be focused on on gaining those skills, that knowledge that can help you achieve what you want to achieve. If you're deliberate about those things mm -hmm. um, and keep an open mind, um, uh, you know, success is never assured. But um, I think you're well prepared for success, success and um, you know, uh, the path to success is not always a straight one. Um, there are necessarily failures along the way, big and small. Uh, you, you just need yeah. to learn from each of those and um, apply what, what, you, what you gained from that experience. Yes, it's a constant, it's constant learning. It's a big learning curve, really, it's, but it's constant. Yeah, it never, never ends, which is exciting. The whole industry is an exciting one. Mm -hmm. Never a dull moment. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, one of the challenges that we've seen other uh, people in the wine industry go through is the industry is now old enough where there's a generational shift. Mm. Um, some people, the children, it's like an obvious succession. Other people, it's not as obvious. Have you thought about what succession looks like for you at Iris? <laughs> yeah, we're still hoping our young, uh, young kids, uh, yeah, um, might get into the industry. I mean, our son does work for on the hospitality side and the, mm -hmm. that that side of the business. Our daughter is in San Diego, so she would be great at this, but. Uh, she, we haven't coaxed her into it yet. Um, other than that... <laughs> so we, we never push the, the, our kids into any of the businesses. We, we certainly you know, had dinner table conversations uh, about, um, about what these businesses and what the opportunities uh, look like. Um, you know, uh, my, my, my daughter, our daughter, <laughs> um, 
talks uh, pretty regularly about um, kombucha in June as something that interests her. Uh, so we'll we'll see if she um, has uh, sufficient entrepreneurial spirit to want to step out there and do something on her own. That's um, certainly certainly possible. Um, you know, so we will we will see. Um, but it's not necessarily important to us that this be a family enterprise ultimately um, you know one of the things in creating opportunities for for people is um, you, you know we we could be involved for a very long time as um, as owners um, in the sort of capacity that we are now mm -hmm. but there may also come a time when uh, those who are, you know, more intimately involved in the company would um, want to, to take a leading role, become owners or partners. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for, for us, uh, there hasn't been a lot of focus on, on an exit. There doesn't need to be an exit, per se, for us to be comfortable or to accomplish the things that we want mm -hmm. for this business. Mm -hmm. One of the other challenges we've seen across the wine industry is staying married. And <laughs> since you have been in the wine industry for a while and you are still married, uh, any secrets to that or advice that you could speak no, to? I didn't know that that was an issue, really. When I think about Southern Willamette wineries, <laughs> we're both just stubborn. Yeah, that's funny. We're, neither of us are going to give in or give up. So. Yeah, and we balance each other you know, pretty well. We're not. I don't know, fighting each other for, for, I don't know, attention or, I don't know, what, what am I trying to say? We, we balance I, I think you got it with balance, yeah. 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 And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily specific to the wine industry. Those are, no. are just broader, yeah, exactly. cultural and individual issues, so. But yeah, yeah, running a business together, that, I mean, that can be challenging, of course, so. Yeah, and there's have, there's sometimes when you just have role. to say, Don, no, yeah. no, no more of this today. And yeah. I think being able to, to yes, do that and, is, and respect that when your partner yes. says that yes. um, is, is important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I heard stubbornness, mm -hmm. balance, mm -hmm. and respect. Yeah, yeah. I think that's Key right. Key ingredients. Yeah. I that's, like that's it. That's a good summary. Good. Well, those were all of my official questions. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that I should have asked or anything that you want to share with us before we conclude? It's a great parting question. Mm -hmm. Should have anticipated it. Um, didn't. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not sure that I, I do have anything much more to say um, uh, other than you know, we look forward to continuing to do what we've done, uh, create opportunities, and make great wines. Thank yes. you. All great questions. Very thorough. Wonderful. Thank well, thank you so much, Richard and Pamela. It was a pleasure interviewing you. Thanks. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson.
producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.